0: Hey, Sheila.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen.
0: We are tonight's entertainment. Say again. Yes, sir! I
2: know
1: who I
0: am! Did IQs just drop
3: shot? I could have been. I have a plan.
0: No. I like this
1: shit. You know, this It is your <laughs> Welcome
0: to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And today we're going to be closing out season one with episode 20, our retrospective on Paul Thomas Anderson by talking about his latest film, Inherent Vice. Before we get into that, I want to check in with Lee. How are you doing, sir?
2: Great, man. Absolutely. I I, I I was actually sick last week, and I've gone over it. You're sick a lot. So uh, <laughs> I... I I'm a pasty white guy from Ireland where it constantly rains. In my day job, I'm I'm touching like application forms for like a pension scheme all day. So who the fuck knows where they've been? Uh, it, 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 there's there's so much that could be germ written, and I I don't care enough from like wash my hands or something in between folding paper and shit like that. So yeah, I, I, I get sick. What of it?
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad there's an ocean separating us. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of it <laughs> but yeah no I, i'm good well we've been away for two weeks and the reason why we've been away for two weeks is because i like i tweeted out i said that i had real life things to take care of so I, if you're gonna blame someone for postponing it's my fault
2: <laughs> yeah i already know i blame you all the time well, there you go <laughs>
0: yeah, but that's it no i mean that's
2: no that's good because I, I, there's so much i want to give to this show in terms of research right 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 uh that like our weekly turnaround isn't working, so that's why I'm kind of thinking for the future. Like we're kind of we've been talking about it doing maybe episodes every two weeks, you know, where we yeah can for now and yeah. research. Yeah, you know, like in the short term, maybe we'll change our minds later down the line. But you know, certainly for now, we'd like to see how it goes two weeks at a time because I mean we already make close to two hour long episodes each time. And uh, I don't I don't know about you, but I I if I see an episode that's two hours long posted by people every week, I there's no way I can keep up. I just don't want. I don't listen. I can't. I listen to one episode every month, basically. Yeah. But I realize we're not getting any better at shortening episodes. So why <laughs> don't we do? Why don't we improve like
0: um, content?
2: Content in the episodes, you know? Yeah, like really go at it. Uh, you know, finally have sex on tape. I mean, that's great. <laughs> I didn't want to mention it, but you went out
0: and did it, so that's all right.
2: I already said it. I couldn't go back. <laughs> But yeah, so I hope it shows with today's episode because, like, I did I, for the first time ever, I wrote like essay pages about what I wanted to talk about.
0: Oh no, I've left my imprint on Lee.
2: <laughs> I know exactly, you know. But <laughs> if you go to early episodes, I won this show. I totally. I wrote about five words for Captain America and like zoned out while Jason talked for a while, and they came back and agreed. <laughs> so, you know, so like. I've <laughs> uh, been steadily writing notes more, and especially with the Paul Thomas Anderson stuff, it's unavoidable. You have to k- come in with something. And this time, by the end of the fucking retrospective, I've adopted his print a sheet out and fucking have have, have notes. Yeah, have bolded. notes
0: just to make sure you hit those marks.
2: It's it's been a transition uh, as far as knowing how to present your thoughts.
0: Yeah, what I realized though is that I don't want to have a strict schedule. We're not going to try to surprise yeah. you guys. And if we do decide to put out a show um, once every two weeks, or if uh, we're going to go back to a weekly thing we'll tweet it out you guys will be the first to know anyway so anyway we're (laughs) gonna leave you guys on that uh with regards to what what we've been up to and we were supposed to have jD Duran from in session mm. film to come talk inherent vice with us uh, we were caught up in scheduling conflicts we couldn't necessarily get it to work and uh we felt you know kind of sad to not have him on the show however he had offered to send us an audio clip of of his review of inherent vice a little bit of what he had to say about it but it also spurred an idea of mine where I decided to uh actually reach out to our community of uh, of people just a few people that i've i've uh, Wanted to be in contact for quite some time uh, as well and give us a chance Mm. to kind of really form, uh, well, I'll call it a communicative bond with these individuals.
2: And so we're. (laughs) I mean, like, we definitely, we already, like, we we follow these people, we read their stuff anyway, but it's, we want to involve them more because, you know, we like,
0: we like their stuff. I I, I have a great time. I mean, uh, there's a few people out there that we're going to mention right now that we hope will become people that we have on the show regularly, uh, you know because we really appreciate their opinions. And so um, JD is going to be one of the first audio clips we play. Then we're going to be talking about uh, Neil Ramji, who's from Film Seekers, brilliant guy. And we also have Andrew from the AB Film Review and The Last New Wave from Australia. And we have Hermione Flavia from uh, Wildfire Productions, who writes reviews uh, for her blog as well. So before we get to the audio clips... I, I really think that we should mention that we know Inherent Vice is a very divisive film. So back in 2014, when the film came out, uh, this was actually one of the first reviews that I decided to write for film faculty. And I'll, I'll just go back to my review so I can give you an idea of just how complex the story can be, even though the plot is secondary to the characters. <laughs> and so what I had said walking out of the film, I was with my girlfriend, uh, who's still my girlfriend now, a lovely human being, hates the film. And she asked me, why the (laughs) fuck did you take me to see this piece of shit movie? Uh, And I decided to sit down and write what was one of my first reviews for Film Faculty. And I started like this. And I'll just read verbatim what's there. You guys will be able to go back on on, uh, Film Faculty to read it if you want. And I essentially say that the opening shot of the film is two houses that are separated by a road that leads to an inviting beachfront. And I say the shot foreshadows the divided opinion people will have about Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. The voiceover starts. Sort of Doc. Uh, Sportello's assistant described Doc's ex-girlfriend Shasta Faye Hepworth as though she were describing a contemporary hallucination of a past memory. Shasta hires Doc a pot-smoking private investigator to keep her current boyfriend Mickey Wolfman a real estate supremo safe from the FBI and his wife who wants him committed. After Doc realizes that Wolfman is actually missing he investigates the web of Wolfman's connections that weave a heroin cartel a warring bike warring Barker gang sorry a drug lord slash dentist who's trying to seduce an heiress... All of whom lead back to a corrupt cop whose dead partner had connections to the cartel, and a bunch of other characters that add more confusion to Thomas Pynchon's muddled mess of a stoner neo noir set at the intersection of hippie culture and of modern capitalist society.
2: That it's it's still true. It's all still true, which is great. <laughs> you know, like that's the thing. I, cards on on the table. I'm going to be quite positive about talking about this film. Uh, I will too. And and I still I totally agree with you. That's the thing like i I, you're not even remotely wrong which is (laughs) which is what i find so funny about this i want to i'm going to really i'm really looking forward to talking about this and listening to our our listeners right uh our 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 buddies in the film community who are going to chime in because uh there's such a wide variety of opinion that's super fun to me. I, I oh, I, I love when when we can get stories that do the that. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: let's let's get to the audio clips first because I really want to talk about. I really want to get to what we have to say, but also I want to just uh, show you just how divisive that film is. Just that the opening yeah. shot that that what I'm talking about, you know, just that walking down to the beachfront, you have these two buildings, one on one side and one on the other. That divided opinion is amongst the people that have sent us the audio clips. Definitely. So let's play J.D. Duran from In Session Film.
1: Hey guys, it's J.D. from In Session Film. I'm sorry that I couldn't be on this particular episode. I really wanted to join you guys for discussion on Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice because I love and adore this film. It made my top 10 of 2014 and uh, I'm not exactly sure where it ranks for me with Paul Thomas Anderson, but I really dug the hell out of this film. I think it's very funny. Uh, it's got a really interesting narrative that is, is simultaneously confusing and convoluted, but thematically very rich all at the same time. In fact, I think a lot of that convolution and that confusion that people will experience on the surface is purposeful. I think it's meant to parallel this disillusioned drug trip that our main character of Doc, as well as other characters in the film, are experiencing. And I think by constructing the film in that manner, it only makes the film more immersive to me. On top of that, Paul Thomas Anderson does a great job of creating a 1970s vibe with the Art direction of the film, the costumes, the music, the lighting, and the framing, it is all spectacular. The craftsmanship of this film is as good as you would expect from Paul Thomas Anderson. Joaquin Phoenix is hilarious in this film. I think he gives a really great performance. As well as Josh Brolin, I think the dynamics and the chemistry between the two are so wonderful and additionally to that you have a great coming out party by katherine waterston as the shasta character who is terrific in this film she doesn't have a ton of screen time but when she's there she packs a punch that i thought was quite terrific especially when you get to more of the intimate scenes later on in the film between her and the dot character and i think ultimately the reason this film resonates so heavily with me uh, on top of what Paul Thomas Anderson brings to it in terms of his direction is what he brings to this film thematically and what's underneath. Because you know, I feel like a lot of people criticized the film or got caught up in what people were experiencing on the surface. Maybe they didn't laugh or find the humor all that great, or maybe they got caught up in the chaos of the mystery of this film and all of the confusion that comes with that And again, it's not about the mystery for me, but I do think there's more to it than that. I think a lot of the characters in this film are searching for something, whether that be love or purpose or maybe it's just the next drug to get them by. But I do feel like a lot of the characters in this film are searching for something, which is really interesting when you juxtapose that with this idea of escapism via drugs and physical pleasure that we see throughout the movie, but with the doc character, especially every action he takes ultimately points back to this idea of reconnecting with the Shasta character. And while that does get very funny at times, there are moments in this film where it gets dramatic and it gets really serious, which of course PTA plays with and always somehow brings a laugh out of even those moments. But I still think there is a dramatic urgency to this film that you can read into the dot character and i i really like that i think that couples very well with the humor of this film and what we see on the surface, uh, that thematic undercurrent, that that idea of searching for something among the chaos, I, I think there's a real dramatic resonance with that uh, underneath this film that I thought was uh, really quite interesting. And I, I would I would go as far as to argue that in a lot of ways, this is one of PTA's most romantic and intimate movies when you boil it down to that idea and how that plays into the doc. Shasta character there are some really quiet and really uh, intimate moments that I really enjoyed on top of everything else so I love Inherent Vice I love PTA and what he's doing in this movie I think this is a little bit of an underrated film I think it was criticized a little too heavily if you ask me I think this is a great film. I love it. I would give it a grade of an A and I highly recommend it, especially if you're a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. Thanks guys for letting me drop by for a few minutes or some extended minutes because it's me, but I appreciate it and I look forward to hearing the rest of the show.
0: All right. So that was JD Duran from In Film. And as you guys can see, he was actually quite, quite positive. positive about the film. Yeah, he yeah the movie. obviously.
2: Yeah, it was one of his top ten of that year, so I mean, like, obviously, there was an emotional resonance there with him.
0: Yeah, so he had a positive reaction to the film, and, and it shows. But, now, I want to show you guys just the opposite side of the spectrum by pay, playing a, a clip from Andrew from the AB Film Review and The Last New Wave.
3: Hi guys, Andrew here from AB Film Review and The Last New Wave. My thoughts on Inherent Vice, Paul Thomas Anderson's last film, is that it's a film that i just don't get i'm a big fan of paul thomas anderson magnolia is my favorite film ever made i think it's a brilliant film however the performances inherent vice uh, are brilliant it's just the story that is working on a different level than i can comprehend and it's one which i don't know if i'll have the patience to revisit because uh, i i just didn't connect with it on initial watch and it's two and a half hour runtime is probably a little bit too much for me to want to try and investigate this again. And I understand it's a film that gets better on repeat viewings, um, which is, is fine uh, if you have that the patience for that. Unfortunately, there just wasn't enough for me to, to want to grip onto and investigate even further. That said, Joaquin Phoenix is brilliant, as per usual, and the supporting characters are fantastic as well. There is a lot of comedy within this film that works really well. It's just not one for me. So yeah, that's my thoughts on Inherent Vice. That said, I do think that Paul Thomas Anderson is still the best filmmaker working today. Thanks again, Andrew from AB Film Review.
0: Now, as you've heard, Andrew didn't necessarily like the film at all. I think he there's a few parts that he would you know if we on on further investigation when maybe talking with him a little bit if we point out some stuff Andrew would be like oh yeah I like that part but overall he was like is this something I'm going to revisit again no
2: yeah yeah exactly he got the impression that you know he liked it for the parts that were in it but as a whole film yeah it's like it, it just lost him entirely yeah. and that's 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 great that's hilarious
0: yeah. <laughs> and let's weigh that against another negative reaction this, Neil this Ramji from Film Seekers uh, so here you go.
4: Hi, my name is Neil Ramji. I'm from FilmSeekers.com and I've been kindly invited to join Jason and Lee to give my thoughts on Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice as part of their retrospective podcast season. So, where do I start? Well, it's often been said by champions of Paul Thomas Anderson that his films require multiple viewings to experience the subtle textures and little nuances and in the case of a film that had any form of cohesion the first time round that would be absolutely fine it would be almost a joy however inherent vice for me was nothing of the sort it's two and a half hours of confusing frustrating stone amusings of a man going from encounter to encounter picking up vague information on an equally unclear case that completely wipes out what you've learnt in the previous scene it's a slog and a bore, and the fact that it's lauded as a masterpiece or direct has some sort of directorial significance annoys me all the more. P. T. Anderson's previous works are all of ex- an extremely high calibre, and anyone who can make Adam Sandler in a film appear as a credible actor already has my goodwill. Inherent Vice hates its audience, and the fact the source material of Thomas Pynchon was deemed barely scriptable in the first instance makes me wonder why this was brought to screen so faithfully at least there's some consistency here with the sound i mean the music fades in and fades out the dialogue is barely legible or cohesive and if it weren't for the affability of whacking phoenix's doc you'd be hard pressed to actually stay for the whole 148 minutes it's gender politics although of the time are woefully poor women in inherent vice are used as Just mere tools of seduction and completely objectified. And while there is respect for women, none of them ever have meaningful conversations, other than to raise the sexual libido of the main character. If you look at a similar film like Richard Kelly's 2006 Southland Tales, the results are almost identical, where reason and narrative falls away, substituted with farcical comedy, and you're just left with a sprawling mess. And this is held aloft as some sort of flower power tribute to the Stone Rage, because it absolutely makes no sense. It's a load of old tripe. Pretty and wonderfully soundtrack tripe, but tripe nonetheless. In my mind, the remit of a film is to entertain and and intrigue. And this just serves a self-important flagellation of which P.T. Anderson doesn't even have a clue what's going on. Incoherent vice was edited as a trailer of pratfall, swooping crane shots, and even a reference to the Last Supper. In reality, all it is is a drug-addled party where you haven't taken any drugs, and it's no fun at all.
0: And uh, there you have it, uh, Neil. Neil flat out hated the film.
2: <laughs> and he, d- he doesn't want to give it the time of day. That's what. That's what's funniest to me. You know, like he, d- he doesn't even want to hear if there's a if there's anything a positive good side it, to exactly. this argument. He's just like. I don't, I don't, I don't want to like I, people hailing this hippie bullshit as as some fucking godsend masterpiece. Yeah, he doesn't want to have it, any it part was, of it. That's fucking hilarious. I, I
0: hadn't <laughs> noticed what he brought up about the uh, about the, the the female characters. Used as, as these these guys, the, these women that are basically like at men's mercy throughout the entire film. I hadn't yeah. seen it like that because I mean, if you look at Reese Witherspoon's character, she uh, she's actually a, a lawyer. She's in an office, but she actually mm. wants to go down to. Uh, well, she she tries to inhale hippie culture as much as she can even though she judges it right so i don't know yeah, i think yeah. that there are certain women in there that do have agency that's a
2: fucking perfectly perfectly uh lobbied criticism of the film uh, and i think that's a great thing that that for somebody to point out like straight away uh, at least neil pointed it out so i mean we got that
0: and that's it which brings us to uh hermione hermione flavia and uh let's see how she felt about the film
5: Hi, this is Hermione Flavia from WildfireMotionPictures.com where I talk about making movies and write reviews and movie news. Inherent Vice is Paul Thomas Anderson's 70s set LA crime film in which a Dennis Hopper-esque Joaquin Phoenix stars as Doc Sportello. It's part Philip Marlowe, part leaving Las Vegas, and has the 70s styling from the clothes to the music and decor. In tone, it's kind of sweet and sexy, clumsy and funny even though it takes in quite a lot of drug use, violence, kidnapping, cults, and a number of other serious themes. It never really becomes bleak, but nor is it a straight comedy. The humour often comes from Joaquin Phoenix's Sportello, whose drug-induced haze means that he never really responds to the strangeness around him. He's just kind of a confused guy. And yet, he is slowly getting to the bottom of the case. And slowly may be the operative word at two and a half hours long it's an odd film from paul thomas anderson who gave us there will be blood magnolia and the master it's not quite like any of these films which appears to have annoyed some fans of there will be blood who are perhaps hoping for more of the same adapted from a novel by thomas pynchon who is reported to love the film it feels more like an immersion in someone else's world or their reality than a thrilling mystery but it's a film with many little delights and a lot of weirdness just let go and enjoy it
0: and there you have it. Hermione actually liked the movie quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Generally positive. Uh, maybe not
2: as maybe not as high on the spectrum as JD, but uh, overall, didn't hate it. That's pretty good. <laughs> no,
0: no. That, and then she actually points out something really interesting at the end there when she says that it's a movie that you should rather experience. It's not something that you're supposed to really... Absolutely. You have to let yourself go into the film. It's not something that you're going to just get a lot from. If you just sit there, you're not going to enjoy it. But she's just saying, let it all in. Just take it in. As it is. Absolutely.
2: That's, that's so true. Uh, that uh, That's something, again, I'll, I'll be kind of touching on is how I experienced the movie. I think it's a little more like how Hermione uh, experienced the movie. Right.
0: It's, it's kind of funny. I, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out that you're going to, you, you see it a little bit more like Hermione. I, I clearly liked the movie, but I'm not, I'm not in Hermione's camp either. But, but yeah. you know, you know me. We were, we were texting about this and you had mentioned to me your analytical mind being my analytical mind is have must have a nightmare with this fucking thing <laughs> yeah. because there's no way in uh, but i found a way in
2: <laughs> at the cost of your energy and uh you know well-being you can, you can dig a hole and and work around absolutely
0: <laughs> yeah but um i think for me as much as i want to enjoy anything that is pension i didn't take pleasure in watching it yeah Th- I had a, I had a good time trying to dissect it because that's what I like doing. I
2: think that's the smartest indication, first of all, before we even get into any sort of discussion about what we right. like and don't like about the film and how it's made. Right off the bat, if you watched it and you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it, that is the right impression, you know? <laughs> I, I I think you're entirely right to have watched this once and said, I didn't enjoy it, and to say, that's my piece, you know? that's I think the film makes a good case for saying... Yeah, there's a lot. There's more to this, but you know, you have to want that, and if you don't, that's that's fine, man. You take it or leave it, and I, I, that's. It's great that you you just go and say, yeah, you know what no matter what i don't think i could like this film
0: it won't stop me from watching it again and again no i that's a sad thing for me because i'm a masochistic bastard but <laughs>
2: that, that's that's because this is kind of our thing you know film is we study a film is what kind of drives us you know so even yeah. the stuff that we don't like has to be looked at but if you're if you're just a general viewer and you tried to watch this film and it didn't appeal to you at all don't feel embarrassed to say i didn't get it or I didn't like it because at least you tried. Well, we'll talk about it and we'll kind of break down things that we like and don't like, and things that we read into the film. Don't feel like we're trying to sway you.
0: Oh God, no, we're not like that.
2: We're gonna say this is what we liked about this film, mm-hmm. and you can make your own mind up. Maybe based on and, and maybe go into it with a little of what we're we're talking about and think, oh, that well, actually, I now that I get that side of things, I I enjoyed it more, or oh, that doesn't change anything for me. You yeah. know, it, yeah, yeah. with that information, you take it or leave it as it is. It won't really change your general view of the film, and Jason's the perfect uh, catalyst for this because he, digging deeper didn't change a thing for him, and he's uh, more than anyone I know would be ready to jump on the chance to love Anderson's work. So I mean,
0: oh yeah, definitely, yeah, one hundred percent right with that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think that's important before we get into it uh, to clarify that this this is just discussion yep it's uh it's interesting notes that we found in our in our separate takes we both took a different vibe from the film that we're going to explore in our own kind of way but you don't have to agree and uh, you probably won't and that's cool that's that's fine too but we lo- obviously we're always interested in hearing what you got from the film and stuff like that and we'll get we'd love to hear that as we go along if you agree with us or found something totally different or you just hated it that's That's what's great about these comments and what's going to be great about, I think, what we present. What you can gain from that is just, oh, it's interesting.
0: (laughs) So on that note, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play the trailer for Inherent Vice and we'll start the discussion or dissection. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Right after this. Stay tuned.
4: If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin,
5: I need your help, Doc.
4: Maybe you should just look the other way. But if you're Doc, it may all start to get a little peculiar after that.
0: Michael Z. Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. Mickey Wolfman. Has vanished. So wh- where would I uh, find him?
4: He's a technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks.
0: Is got a spare picture I could borrow? Ah!
1: Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you're better off with the Nazis. Her, yeah. Whoa! Are you all right? Am I?
2: Are you? Ordinarily, we're the ones asking the questions.
5: And your question is, which side am I on? Good question.
2: Wrong answer. <laughs> Choto, kinichiro, dozo. Moto Penikeku. Moto Penikeku. Moto Penikeku.
0: Hai. Hai. Hai.
5: I hit you! Don't know much about history. Doc may not be a do gooder, but he's done apology. good. But I do know that
3: I love
5: you. And I know that if you love me too,
0: what a wonderful world this would be.
5: Good luck, Doc.
3: What a wonderful world this would be.
0: Coming just in time
4: for Christmas.
0: All right, so welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. The film stars Joaquin Phoenix as Doc Sportello, Catherine Watterson as Shasta Fay Hepworth, Josh Brolin as Bigfoot Bjornsson, Owen Wilson as Coy Harlingen, Eric Roberts as Mickey Wolfman, Martin Short as Dr. Rudy Blatnoid, and Benicio Del Toro as Sancho Similax. Esquire, Of course. Uh, what's her name? Jenna Malone's is isn't there as well as she's playing a girl that's appropriately named Hope because she's hoping for Coy to come back. <laughs> so, how do we start this thing? Do you want us to give a definition of what Inherent Vice actually means? Uh, d-
2: d- that is, you know, the film explains it, but for people who are just casually listening, that might help because the title might annoy them. Yeah,
0: so I looked up the definition. I took a little bit of what was in the, the, the film as well. Yeah. Inher- inherent Vice itself is a law term. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning, it's something that happens to itself. So they use it in marine insurance policy. So it means anything you can't avoid. So something that is going to self implode without external forces. Yeah. So if we break down the meaning itself, is that everything that is created is created with a flaw that is essentially inescapable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's 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 over time um, deterioration. Think of human beings and our bodies. We eventually die. Think of, uh, you know, glass, the cracks, uh, fucking carpet that gets torn up, you know, tiles, et- everything, batteries dissolve into themselves everything has an inherent vice uh so it's a good title it's used in the context of shasta Fay in the film but uh it, it applies yeah. to everything yeah
0: it is I, I think so and because inherent vice even if you take it away from the law term that it actually means mm-hmm. you can look at it from different angles the way that Pynchon usually likes to look at language you know the deconstruction of the words an inherent vice if you look at the word vice Vice is usually something that's negative, something that's uh, in line with prostitution or drug dealing and something like that, right? Yeah. But when he's talking about Inherent Vice, especially a book coming out in 2009, but then, you know, if he sets it in 1970, anyway, around, it's a transition film again, anyway, I'll say that right away. So it's a transition (laughs) period from the 60s to the 70s. And essentially, that is where Pynchon uh, has decided to set his film because those were the years where there was an inherent vice in society. He's not seeing it as a flaw. It's just that, because we're going from existentialism to capitalism and trying to mix these two things together, there is not necessarily a flaw, but there's a a want to yep. indulge in something that's a little bit more elusive yeah
1: well
2: this is a deterioration at least you know so of,
0: of old values
2: yeah exactly you know ex- exactly and, and and that needs to be made fresh and new
0: before we actually get to anderson i want to talk about pension, but i'm going to talk about pension by quoting anderson <laughs> okay in an interview with mark kermode anderson described his film as a film that is about the longing for the past right so inherent vice itself is a is a a book that deals with entropy and it's a common theme that Pynchon likes to recuperate. He'll use it in *The Crying of Lot 49. I think he uses it in Vineland as well but in Inherent Vice it's clearly there. It's this spinning spiral of, of chaos that's going to be if you knock one thing and then it starts hitting another thing and another thing and another thing and just becomes this very chaotic environment. Yeah. And essentially what Pynchon likes to do is in his novels... The search for meaning, what he tries to explain is that it's elusive because there's no meaning to begin with. And this is what he tries to explore in The Crying of Lot 49, where he tries to lump symbols, uh, meaning onto symbols, but the symbols don't lead to any place. They just lead to other symbols, right? So essentially when we're looking at words we are going to put the meaning onto words. But if you look at the word itself, it's just a jumble of letters and we have to attribute meaning to that. Sure. Now, the problem with words post-World War II is what the Nazis did to them. If you read George Steiner's work, Language and Silence, he explains that euphemism was born out of World War II and that words were used in a very, very shitty way. Right. If you look at the words Final Solution, death and murder are nowhere to be found in that, right? So we start trying to interpret what words are they're used in a euphemistic way in order to kind of con people into believing specific things now what steiner explains in his work is that the language the german language anyway has never really fully recuperated from that but just imagine what happens once you start translating that language right now we go to english we go to french we'll go to anybody that was involved in world war ii and now we have options with words and so what i think Pynchon tries to do in the the novel, okay, and what Anderson will later recuperate for longing for the past with the visual style that he chose to adopt for Inherent Vice is that Pynchon tries to show that the fundamental structure of words. Is an example of inherent vice itself. They right, yeah. are born, okay, because we can interpret words. There is an infinite amount of possibilities of interpretation of sentences when we put the words together. Now, when the communication aspect kicks in and the understanding of the individual also kicks in, then you could be stuck with a never ending cycle of misinformation. Yeah. Kind of what goes on in inherent vice. <laughs> in- in and so, this is what's kind of interesting about the book and about the film is that look at the number of times that information is misinterpreted throughout the film just take the scene where where uh bjornson calls sportello and says shasta is gone sportello immediately thinks she's dead but if you look at the concept of gone it just means not here yeah right it doesn't imply death but because when we say we, we can't deal with death in a normal way, we'll go to George Carlin to talk about euphemistic language. Because we can't deal with death, we'll use a word like gone to just kind of imply she's left us. But then <laughs> Björnson goes and says, no, she's missing, she's gone. She's missing, she's gone. And so Sportello is caught between like trying to interpret what Bjornsson is saying and going like, fuck, stop fucking with me. What are you trying to say? So there's a communication breakdown again between uh, Sportello and bjornson Now, when Sancho goes to get Sportello, uh, so the Benicio Del Toro character goes to get Sportello at the police station. Again, Bjornsson, Bjornsson says he was about to kick Sportello. And so Sancho says, hey, that's assault. But Sportello has to explain to him that kick means he was going to let him go. <laughs> like kick him to the curb, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so we again have this interpretation thing, you know, oh, you can't use the, that language because if you say kick, that means I can get you on assault for something like that, which goes with the police brutality theme that we're going to be talking about a little bit later. But these, these two things go to show just how strange communication can get just because of how words are used. Uh, yeah. Another example of that is uh Sancho uh, uh, in the diner when they're trying to explain that Wolfman uh when he tries to explain to Sportello that Wolf uh, I'll call him Doc from now on. Uh, Doc is the word that wants to come out. So when uh, when Sancho tries to uh talk to Doc about uh Wolfman trying to uh, start something in Las Vegas. Yeah. But then he uses an example in saying, Howard Hughes. uh, Yeah. He says, Howard Hughes with the Italians. Sportello gets lost in the information and he goes, Howard Hughes was Italian. That's actually that, that
2: part. That's a quote I'm going to come back to as well. So okay, cool. keep that fresh in your mind listeners.
0: (laughs) But that's it. So, I mean, there's this, again, a constant misinformation. People are trying to say specific things and they're getting lost. And I mean, if you look at it in, 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 uh, just look at, uh, if I go to puck, you know, puck, If you look at puck, the word puck in Shakespeare is a guy that's going to be the guy that in Midsummer Night's Dream that's going to fuck everything up and then you'll have Oberon that's going to have to try to save the entire day once Puck goes back but then you have Puck in Inherent Vice who's wearing a swastika on his face and you're like we associate directly to Nazis but then you'll have the doctor that's with Doc when he sees Puck and yeah. he says oh no that's an ancient Hindu symbol meaning that all is well which kind of got me thinking about what Nixon tried to do during the 60s when he uses those V fingers yeah. and try, trying to reappropriate the peace sign to see v for victory victory, as opposed to v for peace and so i think that in this case when we're trying to piece together a film and this is goes like with what hermione was saying if we try to piece together this film the narrative becomes just this series of interpretations of interpretations of an interpretations which kind of brings us down to being kind of like doc where we think we're living this weird delusion and watching the movie and i think that that's pinching himself that's seeping through anderson showing us in his visual style that the words what he's trying to interpret You know, is this loss of language, this misinformation caught at the crossroads of the 1960s and 70s of people that are trying to get along, Mm -hmm. but there's clearly an exchange of information that is not being dealt with in the right way. And so, inherent vice in and of itself, yes, comes to the culture that you were born with, but it also informs the language and how you're going to be able to communicate with others. And so, it becomes just this weird mess. And so, I thought it would be. Kind of interesting to give a little bit of a backdrop of what, what we're doing with and what Pynchon usually tries to do uh, and when he's trying to uh, shape the words uh, that he actually uses in his novels. Right. So that, that's the way I wanted to start that, by talking about a longing for the past because essentially what Pynchon is trying to say and I think what Anderson is going to trying to say by proxy, Pynchon is longing for a time where words were less complicated. Interesting. And I think that that's where it transposes onto Anderson's visual language in the film, which is much tighter than his mm. other film. You know, we went we talked about. Uh, boogie nights you know we were like it was screaming scorsese look at me i'm a filmmaker this is awesome and everything was just so flagrant right yeah and then by the time mm-hmm. we get to there we will be blood is like whoa this is my kubrick i love what i'm doing here but if we're going to go to inherent vice as paul thomas and Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's choice film right now the visual language he uses in this one is actually quite stripped down Mm -hmm. it's a visual language that actually goes back to the noir phase
2: definitely of the
0: 1930s and 40s we'll call it gumshoe of the United States right where you'll have like guys like Sam Spade that are going to come in where you're going to have this voiceover that's going to be there but it's going to be basically establishing shot shot reverse shot and then you're going to have an establishing shot to end the scene it's exactly how movies were shot in 30s and 40s yeah you'll have a little elaborate tricks that are going to be on the screen things yeah. are going to be happening in the Sometimes background.
2: sometimes there's action and it's very pronounced know sometimes we'll get a whole establishing tale of a of of an area so we know where we are but yeah more or less most of the dialogue and the scenes are very straightforward one two shot reverse yeah you're absolutely right
0: that's it so i think that he adopted that visual style on purpose he didn't want to be flamboyant because if he's going to go with what uh might be doing in terms of words longing for the past longing for meaning right i think that by stripping down his visual style his visual language he's actually paying a little bit of a tribute to what the the noir used to be in the 30s and 40s in Hollywood. So it's Definitely. him going back in time the same way as Pynchon going back in time and setting his film in the 1970s. Uh, setting his book, sorry, in the 1960s and 70s. Definitely. And so, yeah, we'll get a little bit to what I want to talk about in terms of how the, the film is shaped as a loop, but uh, that's basically what I wanted to say uh, to begin with. And I yeah. think that noir essentially leads us into what you wanted to talk about in terms of post-modernism. Absolutely. And, I, I, and noir.
2: What I want, to, I want to speak about quickly, though, uh, about what you were saying. Because, like you say, like a sand up or homage to these things where right? i from my angle uh, they were very critical of these things like for example oh, you say, sure. language that kind of call back to a a time language was simpler is what you got from it, and what I got from it was be- due to the, the postmodern nature, where it's uh, approaching the reality of, of the fact that um, language is is fluent and varied and critical. It is a sort of denouncement of, of the, the these proper words, you know, like it's, it's it's more of an establishment of what really exists in the world, what how language really sounds, and right.
0: that. But just 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 to, to riff on what you were saying right there, to me, sure. inherent vice is an antithesis to the great game. Gatsby because you'll have Gatsby who's trying to if you if you look at the last sentence boats against the current born back ceaselessly into the past uh, that's off the top of my head so I'm paraphrasing I think that that is longing for the past I think that Nick Carraway's character is somewhat like Doc Sportello and he's reporting sure. what he sees he's confused he's the middle man he's the guy that's stuck in between these two things and I think that inherent vice plays a little bit to that this longing to the past so if we're right. looking a little bit about how Gatsby when you read the great Gatsby the words are pure they're innocent they mean what they mean they have to use the green light as a symbol for Daisy, you know, as the American dream, it's very simple, it's very clear. Yeah, yeah. When you fast forward to the 60s, post World War II, you know, past the roaring 20s, that were a a time of innocence, you know, the jazz age and stuff like that. But people were still very innocent, even though World War I had had a huge impact on them. World War II was much more devastating. And so language has been killed at this point. And if you're looking for a longing for the past, I think that inherent vice really speaks to that, where language has gone to a place that can no longer be recuperated.
2: Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I think you're right, but I think it's more... I, 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 I got the impression it was more a denouncement of that, you know? That's what I mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. I feel like, it, yes, it highlights that, that that there is that longing, but mm-hmm. the reality of the scenario is that even with that miscommunication and that, that the challenge that that presents, we still find happiness in that, you know? We still resolve most of our problems. In fact, the man who tries to resolve things, he doesn't. Doc doesn't, you know? He, uh, he is the guy who just happens to be there While everything solves itself The right. world functions without him Without the man at the center of the story Because there is no center anymore That's very postmodern and So you're looking at oh, a world right. that Absolutely. functions perfectly fine Without that individuality Forcing itself on it And so that that sort of nostalgia That, that sense of trying to like speak up I can't hear you That kind of thing that Doc embodies He's out of place in the real world that now exists where, where everybody finds a place and it's a mess, but they're happy. You know, like everybody kind of gets a happy ending except the, you know, the murderous Nazi guy and his drug dealer boss. But I mean, uh, everybody else, even, putting it lightly. You, yeah, even uh, Mickey Wolfman finds happiness in a cult. You know, the family gets reunited. You know? Everybody kind of ends somewhere. Yeah. Even Doc settles a little with Shasta Faye. They kind of, right. even the, the, in what they could term as settling, which is not settled, but at least that's something of a bridge towards the real world. Where mm-hmm. everything is in constant flux That's postmodernism
0: I get it But look at the last shot of the film
2: Yeah what, What's the last shot? It's in the car With the lighting The noir lighting in his eyes
0: His eyes, exactly Where do his eyes go? Uh, to the camera Nope, they go up to the rear view mirror Where is he looking? To the... Pa- but, uh, I, that, but that's what I'm saying <laughs> He is he is that man though That's yeah, the yeah, point yeah. He's the fault
2: in the story He okay. is the guy representing those values But he's not the world That we're supposed to be in healing You know? No, okay, yeah Yeah, so you're right to focus on that Because because that's this is doc's problem with the story is he right. doesn't fit. So that 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 makes sense because this is the postmodern world and he's the modernist. He's the guy trying to make finite sense of what's happening. 100% right. So, uh, the rear-free mirror, that's right. He's clinging to that, even if he's trying to embrace forward movement. You know, he's in the car driving forward, he's still looking back. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Here we go. We're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about, uh, Inherent Vice, the neo-noir, postmodernist. This is all stuff we've all, you've already kind of approached and, you know, we've already hit a bunch of little tick boxes there. Uh, cool. About what I kind of wanted to say, but uh, I think first, here's the kind of way I like I-, I-, I viewed inherent vice. Okay, it's when I sat down, there's, uh, there's two ways I went about it. One, because with the benefit of not having to see this in cinema, I could pause it at any time. I took this, yeah, <laughs> when I realized how dense the dialogue was, I never rewound, but I, I-, I paused kind of semi frequently just to chill for a bit because I-, I took it like I take a book. If I'm being constantly barraged with information, I get overworked, you know, your yeah, mind you need a breather. Just- yeah, you you need to chill. I mean, it's not the same thing that happened with Seven, Seven Samurai. That yeah. was just sheer length, you know. That was sheer exhaustion from investing for long periods of time in somebody's journey this was information overload if you've seen the film in cinema and you walked away with just feeling like it was too much I feel there is something to say about taking your time about watching it slowly and kind of pacing it a bit it worked for me I don't know if it works for everyone but it worked for me more and from this perspective that we now live in where it's more readily available to download or to view and stream like I got to see it on a streaming service this worked in my benefit you know so we're gonna look at stuff we Understand about the film. Let's let's break it down really simply. What kind of film is it? What's its genre? Okay, so if your answer was stoner comedy, it's it's not a wrong answer, but it's I, I don't know, man. I you must have been watching it totally. I mean, it is funny and it's got stoners, but I don't think it's not like a Seth Rogen film. You know, like that's kind yeah, of yeah, what yeah. they do or where they've ended up. But anyway, so. Genre. We, you already mentioned it. It's a noir, you know. Uh, specifically neo-noir, as you mentioned in your in your little snippet in your review, which is great that you picked up on all the t- at the time. Uh, I guess that's that's kind of a thing I can throw to you. What do you think defines a noir?
0: Um, detective story. You're going Good. to have uh, voiceover narration. Um, you're going to have uh, intersecting uh, plot lines involving multiple characters surrounded by a MacGuffin. MacGuffin's, MacGuffin's one I actually I don't have here but that's a good one. <laughs> well, I mean, look at look at the, 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 the Maltese Falcon in the Maltese Falcon. Uh, yeah, of course. That's, <laughs> that's like the, the proto-typical
2: there example of noir, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a good one, definitely. Uh, so yeah, so as you said, hard-boiled detectives. Uh, you, you said detectives. Hard-boiled is usually the term they phrase. Yeah, it's the,
0: the tough guy. CD backdrops,
2: you know. Crime <laughs> is a very big thing. Rough yep. beat police, you know. Uh, Femme fatales, <laughs> poverty decline, hubris. You know, these are kind of... The, the, they set up... It's kind of like an evolution of the old sort of, kind of like the romantic kind of stuff. We got these old, uh, Byronic heroes. This is like the evolution of them. These, these, uh, yeah. these moody, morally difficult men of resolve and pathos. You know, that tended to define the genre uh, at the time. And it, it, It's kind of more like, it's that kind of bun movement where it wasn't set on principles. It just happened to all happen and form this nice little click where they all yeah. kind of look the same, even unintentionally. So that's, that's what's fun about noir. There's lots of little bits you can pick up on. For me, like, I, I, I like to keep it really vague because it's really vague. So really? I say, it's a rough story with rough characters told rough you know that's super super generic it's a nice way to kind of just categorize everything it's just a it's a f- the filmic version of the pulp narrative absolutely you're right to say pulp because these are accessible still yep. that's the reason why we still talk about noir films it's the reason why it categorized such a big movement in cinema mm-hmm. at such an early time it was hugely accessible everybody could get in on it and that's why you could watch Casablanca today and it holds up perfectly you know it's a great film just timeless in its result it everything it does and it's in noir as well you know it's accessible and it's kind of there's more to it contextually but as a, as a straightforward romance it's kind of perfect in what it tries to do and again on camera we see a lot of that through like uh you know shadows is a big thing in noir it's, it's in the fucking title noir meaning black in french it's very easy to see that so we got evolution of german impressionism is one of those fun one of those fun things you know so think of nosferatu and der golem uh those are fun like creepy abstracty kind of films that play heavily with shadows and lighting and uh, difficult to divine sets.
0: Well, the most popular is Caligari. Or Caligari, of course.
2: But yeah, cool. So anyway, how is Inherent Vice a noir? Let's, Let's budge along. Uh... Jason, voiceover narration. <laughs> Good. Well, it is. It's as simple as that. It genuinely is. It's got those same tropes we just mentioned. It's got.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of use of shadows in the film that you're gonna be able to see it. I mean, you even talked about it in the car. uh Even uh, when uh, Doc is uh, peering out the window and he's trying to uh, see if Shasta's there, you'll have that blue tint that's Scorsese, but at the same time, it's Scorsese drenched in shadow, recuperating that noir aspect of it. You'll have the the drop dead gorgeous femme fatale in Catherine Waterson. Uh, you're gonna have what they call not the gumshoe in this one, but The gum sandal, as he's referred to. (laughs) Really? What? Well, wait, explain that. Because he wears flip-flops. Oh,
2: oh, that's
0: awesome. He's the private eye. They call him the gum sandal. Uh, Then you'll have the the rough cops, and it's actually... when I was reading Inherent Vice I, I, and I saw Josh Brolin I was like oh he he interpreted the character differently than I did uh, he actually had the rough edges in his fucking haircut which oh absolutely kind of cool you know and even his shoulder definitely. pads uh, on his suit are a little bit squarer than average
2: that's fun about his character is he wants to be a gumshoe yeah. and he's got the look of a gumshoe you know he's got that <laughs> yeah. real, very square jawed tight haircut and kind of but, a disheveled over overburdened look you know
0: he, he kind of looks like Humphrey Bogart I'll be honest I, yeah uh, definitely I agree so, I mean, he, he's picking up on old style gumshoe-esque. Uh, things so yeah there's definitely that multiple plots uh, who, who's who's the MacGuffin
2: uh, Shasta Faye
0: Shasta yeah Shasta is the MacGuffin yeah definitely
2: she is the Maltese Falcon from she's a suitcase from Pulp Fiction she's just there
0: you go absolutely
2: not not super divine but drives the plot at least as far as our protagonist goes so yeah absolutely, definitely yeah. Uh, so yeah abs- those are all perfect uh, especially the, the multi-connected
0: I'll say the interconnected plot lines that's yeah those. yeah Some absolutely multiple plots but interconnected plot lines
2: they, they kind of are like multiple plots so they got the whole- <laughs> (laughs) They are,
0: yeah. They're just short stories in and of themselves, and you're like, there's more to that story. Yeah, exactly, (laughs)
2: exactly. Uh, Yeah, exactly. We've we've got uh, got a drug stories that's you know divided by CIA's and all that. This conspiracy of neo Nazis. It's all seedy underbelly. There's our rough background, and there's so many plots. Oh yeah, going on at the same time and as you we've got her femme fatale obviously we've got Shasta Faye is is a, is a modern-ish femme fatale because well, she lives her own life she lives by her own rules and she drives that plot in that same way the mystery about her that sort of danger about her especially as far as Doc's concerned well maybe the rest of the world doesn't see it as dangerous Doc definitely does but I, yeah. he's allured to it that's all super fun and it's all fairy. it's quite noir anyway neo-noir let's define it okay so let's take the principles of a noir and uh, which we kind of roughly defined, and update or subvert them in some way to tell a new story with some similar elements. So an example is Blade Runner, okay? So we've got a story that... And then we're not just talking. Oh yeah, it's a noir with you know with fucking androids. That's that's not that's that's not just it. You know that that would just be a noir with androids, not a neo noir. That's just a that's that's surface stuff.
0: Replicants, replicants, replicants. <laughs> that's the word. Thank there you, yeah.
2: God. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you know, it look, it, it it takes noir, but it looks at like our existence and moral ambiguity of creating life. You know, this is stuff like sci fi stuff that like and deep conceptual sci fi stuff that has nothing to do with. The old noir tropes. It's but it's taking that that style of cinema and using it to a more powerful imagery in another medium. You know that's. Oh yeah. That's perfect neo-noir to me. I think that's a great interpretation. That's a great use of neo-noir. Because you've done something different. Another great use. And I guess it's one that... I I, I don't know if people think about it very often. Is, is Fargo is, is a great neo-noir. So think of it yeah. this way, okay? It essentially flips the focus to villains instead of heroes. But it's still a noir. So instead of spending all the time watching heroes track down villains, we spend villains getting about their job. And in the background, the the hero catching up slowly, you know? right? It's, it's a reversal of that so that's inverted plus lighting wise it's a world almost entirely in light it's Mm -hmm. bright white it's colour I wouldn't say colourful but it is definitely harshly bright instead of dark Uh, and we spent more time in dark with the hero who's you know in her date you know in her bedroom you know that kind of stuff it's a version of that and it's to show you know a, a desperate man doing dodgy deals in a cheerful and happy place it's it's playing with the same vibes but it's it's almost the direct opposite of what defined noir it's just it's just a playful way and you know and contrasting that you know it's it, with the terrible tragedy that happens in this kind of peaceful lovey kind of place Yeah, it, it tells a different side of noir it doesn't always have to be seedy for the shit to go down it, it, right. it, you know it, you could be in a perfectly fine place and there's seedy finds you you know that's fun that's great who doesn't love Fargo <laughs> uh, but that's to me that's neo-noir so how is inherent feist neo-noir remember that film we were talking about <laughs> yeah, so yeah Yeah, with those examples, you could probably point to pretty obvious examples of how this film flips the expectations for film noir. Uh, Because it's a little different. What we're essentially exploiting and subverting here are our expectations regarding how a neo-noir is told. And how we do it is by using tricks. Just a few tricks, okay? So the first one is N-Media res. Here we have a story that starts right in the middle. What we kind of do as as a narrative is we move backwards and forwards. So a very conventional uh, noir thing is, you know, a detective... He's hard we learn everything we need to know about him first five, ten minutes. He's got a tough job, uh, and it's rough, and all that kind of element's still there. But how we apply it is we we learn everything about all the other characters at the same time. We expand so far that we build a world rather than build a story. Right. So we take the same tricks, you know, that a Noir does, but we ex we expand it, we spread it out. So by starting the story with Shastafe telling Doc to look for Wolfman, everything else about the story and this man's life is essentially picked up from the past connections and off-screen understandings so it seems fair to say that we're in the continuing adventures of doc sportello you know this if you put this book on a shelf you could see the first and second part this isn't even this is the first detective story with doc sportello it's it's not even the last he's somewhere right in the middle of the chronology of this man but at the same time it's totally separate from the stories we're gonna hear you know uh that That fun thing, that just kind of pulls away from noir, which usually have a very strict. Even if it's. We started with a guy who's well established in his job, we don't usually explore his past so thoroughly. You know, no. his relationships uh, and build a like a missing link that we're constantly grabbing at. And, and and it's Doc who does that because he's always fascinated with what he used to have. He used to have Shasta Fe, He's always pulling at it. We have to use flashback at one point to even get there to get an understanding. So, I mean, this this story comes after a number of stories, some breakups, some real. This is the middle. And that says neo-noir. All right, secondly, a slurred and muttered dialogue made of mostly adages, references, and turns of phrase not explained or expected to be understood by the audience.
0: <laughs>
2: Noir is accessible. That's what we just said. But aside from romance books, you can get a thriller and a detective story on any airport shelf. They are the most easily to get invested in in short bursts they are just they're just fun mysteries that pull you along as a reader keep you invested for long periods of time that's what people have such an accessible relationship with them this is the anti that <laughs> yeah, this is Absolutely. this is a film that doesn't really care whether you follow along or not and i i would argue intends for you not to yeah, because it doesn't want to reward you for doing so. Okay, and this is where I'm going to pull back the quote that we were talking about earlier about Benicio de Toro's character, a Doc. All right, so here we have this ex this conversation
0: between between Sancho and Doc. Okay, just when they they've they've seen the boat of Golden Fang.
2: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So he's getting the tail end of this from Sancho. Here's the conversation where the where it fears off towards the plot you know. Right. So he says, the words I'm here, and he slurs, is that the Department of Justice, which we've never talked about, is trying to broker a Vegas deal for him. Who's him? Vegas deal. Where's this coming from? First time I've mentioned it, more or less. And so he nods, you know, as if he understands himself. Mm-hmm. Doc leans in unintelligibly kind of goes doesn't compute uh, something like that yes. say say again Vegas Wolfman it's, it ties with your communication breakdown He, yeah, he yeah. Doc can't hear him yeah. they get interrupted by the, by the lady who comes by with the drinks which is just good comedy and good timing it's fun
0: he pulls it to the side
2: Yeah oh, Pulls man. it to
0: the side And then he leans
2: right back in Leans right forward It's the least subtle Detective work ever It's fucking hilarious <laughs> Sancho leans back in And goes FBI stuff They need somebody else On the strip Who's not Italian You dig? So that's not even like it That's not even like do you understand? That's uh, that's that's a euphemism for do you understand me? Exactly. You know, it's not. It's layered already into even the uh, the words for understanding, and then it gets right into what you were saying. Yeah. Like Howard Hughes when he bought the desert in—that's a ref nine times out of ten. You're the guy who doesn't get what the fuck he's talking about in that audience. Exactly. Just watching you came here for a stoner comedy. That's that's they start talking about Howard Hughes buying the <laughs> desert. What the fuck, right? And more than that, that's not where Doc questions the miscommunication. <laughs> He takes it somewhere totally different. <laughs> <laughs> Howard Hughes was Italian. It's right it's off a, the it's beaten a path. Good line. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious.
0: It's but Joaquin, the way he acts it is just perfect too. You can I, see that, confusion. the confusion. Yeah, exactly. He
2: acts it all out with his face. It's oh my god, hysterical. Uh, yeah, and Sancho, he, he he sighs and says, "No, they want white people." They, so he doesn't even answer. <laughs> It doesn't really explain <laughs> any... We just dropped the hard Hughes thing. And he goes on... They want white Anglo owners on the strip. Who better than Mickey Wolfman? What, why do they want white Anglo? What does that have to do with it? That's a reference to a contextualized thing that might even be made up. That might like just the, be the Aryan
0: Brotherhood, isn't
2: it? Yeah, well, I get that's where that ties in with the plot. Right. Eventually, you know, that's why they get. But it doesn't mean anything, you know, it doesn't no, actually inform... <laughs> inform Doc. Just he... assumes... No information. This is just all backstory to something <laughs> that Doc doesn't care about. He just wants to know where Shastafay is. <laughs> And why Mickey... What? Where the fuck... Uh, what happened to Mickey Wolfman? Because he's related. And instead we get a fucking FBI story <laughs> about the Anglo politics against Italians in Vegas and, and, the, and the new commerce deals with the neo-Nazis. I mean, like... <laughs> That it's, it's baffling, okay but so yeah. that's this is just this is just one like that segment I kind of broke it down very slowly but yeah. that that's conversation is like it's like four or five lines and it's about 10 15 seconds long. you ha- like I had to play it over and over again just to quote it yeah because also the entire time they're slurring, they're mummering yeah. Uh, you know, they, they they kind of have little uh, accents that develop on some words you dig, you know, like all this is against the idea of noir as accessible cinema. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's, it's just such a fun, con- it's a fun excerpt to explain it because there's so much of it, all of the film. I mean, at least that one's a fun example. There's piles of ones that just aren't funny. They're not funny and they're not interesting. They're just the same. They're more information. Yeah. like. A lot of
0: um Owen Wilson's conversation. Oh, I'm just about to say Owen yeah, Wilson. Harlegan's conversation in exactly. the bar with Sportello goes on for fucking ever, and it doesn't and mean like, a what?
2: thing. It, it, it's all it's all trying to contextualize something, but it's it's, it's trying not to let you contextualize it. It's yeah. just giving you, it's feeding you an overload of information to be, essentially assemble or, or resemble white noise.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's essentially, what's what's funny is that when you, I, I think that this is this is key. Anderson probably understands the audience is really listening at this point. Yeah. And so what he does, he complicates things by getting them to whisper. G- gets they them to whisper, gets a girl
2: down. to interrupt them, you know, like this is exactly. simple things, you know, gets just breakdowns these... in the conversation. They don't exactly. even hear each other. So they break your concentration every time exactly so you can't yeah you can't follow that's a perfect example anderson definitely knows the tone that it's going for yeah that's why it's so effectively communicated throughout so it's very very intentional okay yep. and so obviously though that doesn't make it fun you know it no, just makes no it intentional
0: it's, yeah but I just want a bitch slap <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yes Deterring you from the specifics. That's important to remember. That's what it wants you to do It doesn't yeah. want you to focus. It wants you to generalize and that's why yeah, I'm kind of generalizing <laughs> <laughs> Third point when it comes to neo-noir we double down on noir expectations so that it become incomprehensible I-, I wrote this before the conversation that we were just having basically explains exactly that But yes more examples. I suppose, you know, where's Shastafe? Who runs the Golden Fang? Who owns the boat the Golden Fang? Who killed bigfoot's partner where's mickey wolfman who killed glenn charlock where's coy who is the narrator how does she know doc you know we get this we kind of get this information eventually but you really have to be paying attention but yeah what does that all mean and what do we gain from Inherit vice being a neo-noir so yeah uh it's a neo-noir so fucking what <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> before we can look at that okay so again we have to break it down that's the whole point of this we finally have to look at postmodernism. Mm-hmm. so uh i do have a sort of a quote a guy from a guy called Dragon Milifanovich uh, from the Department of Criminal Justice in Northeastern Illinois University so this is something I found very readily on the internet because I didn't really want to dig into a book just to find the fucking meaning of postmodernism because I kind of already half knew it right. but uh, I think here's a kind of fun way to summarize it by kind of just understanding that what I'm about to say is a bunch of things that modernist thought inherited or eventually became right. and postmodern just think of the answer or response to these And that's you. Here's the quote. Most of the key concepts of modernist thought were critically examined and found to be wanting. Entrenched bureaucratic powers, monopolies, the manipulative advertisement industry, dominant and totalizing discourses, and the ideology of the legal apparatus were seen as exerting repressive powers. In fact, the notion of the individual, the free, self-determining, reflective, and the center of activity, was seen as an ideological construction, nowhere more apparent than in the notion of the juridic subject, the so-called reasonable man in law. Rather than the notion of the individual, the centered subject, and we were going to play with a little bit of um, entropy here, the postmodernists were to advocate the notion of the decentered, subject
0: yeah, uh, perfect definition here's a
2: good catch-all quote if you want to just generalize it because modernism had make it new yeah that was their their catch-all quote here is postmodernism, uh, sort of summarized by jean-francois Lyotard.
0: Lyotard, yeah i know where you're going
2: <laughs> let us wage a war on totality that's it that's 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 a catch-all buzzword phrase to try to focus Postmodernism around so essentially modernism was all about order and establishing definitive terms and structures so that we could best understand life yeah. you know best understand where we are how we think in life there was an emphasis on realism uh which was a huge art movement and and, and a writing movement yeah at uh, the turn of the early 20th century much in the waves of modernism and all this was to a fault argues postmodernists because most things are in a constant state of flux and can't be readily assigned places. So that's that's you want know, that's that's a brief overview just to give us enough contextualization to talk about a little more about inherent vice but of course there's so much more to read if you're interested even remotely. So we have a, a loose definition of postmodernism. What does it mean for inherent vice to be a postmodern neo-noir film? What are we supposed to gain from that? Well, uh, okay, a couple of points that I kind of picked up okay so we've already kind of touched on it it's a scathing criticism of specifics right so figure the plot is one thing and characters as another yeah by blurring specifics in plot in this film we gravitate towards character and here we could be asked to try and span the film not following the whys and wheres but really understanding the whos who is doc what is he he's a hippie detective a man constantly derided by his peers adversaries contacts as a hippie yeah He's a drug-dependent man of his time, he's living in his own detective novel, he's a man who absolutely thinks he's cooler and more capable and more suave than he is, and at the heart of it, he's essentially a good man. Yes, money comes last on his priority list, and he's ultimately a man of action in that he returns a a husband to his his wife and child, you know, there's is a positive role model in one very specific aspect of the story, you know? He has an impact on a part of the story, not the whole story, much of it, not really directly at all. In fact, you could say the part where he, he helps Koi re- reunite with his family. It's mostly because he's bartering for his life after being set up by Bigfoot. Yeah. So it's not, it's not really spun out of a desire to save Koi. It's actually just happens. It's still good action, but it happens almost accidentally. If he ha- if it hadn't been mentioned that he had terms to debate for his life, he never mentioned Coy. So it's that's just where he ends up at that point. But even then, he's not, as we kind of looked at, he's he's constantly backwards looking. His relationship with women is poor or one-sided at best. But what do we gain from that? From looking at where Doc's position in the story is? Well, we could ask ourselves what our place in our own life is. That's one way of looking at it. You know, where do we fit in with the world around us? Do we follow direction blindly? Are we at the back of others? As as Doc often is, they ask him for his help. He just doesn't. You know, he, there's no, he doesn't say no to a case ever. No. Do we help people by being involved in the world around us? Or in general do we help people? Uh Do we want to be like Doc? That's a direct question from the film while we relate to him do we want to be the man who can't fit in or it's not so much fit in but understand comprehend because he's not exactly our hero and he's not a role model so from that character study we can return that spotlight back on ourselves very easily and apply it to the blur of the noise we can reflect that on ourselves very readily that we don't understand a lot about the world that we live in if you look at science you could other general understanding of science but you don't understand it like a scientist would you know you have to find a place with that the fact you have to find a point where you're happy to be content Mm -hmm. with not knowing certain things you have to find a position in life that suits to not know and what suits to know doc is very much he's a hippie i mean that's that means he picked a specific sect of life a, a doctrine of rules to live by and they are positive rules but here they're played with, to an extent negatively because he's not willing to change and by looking at that we can say well maybe we should be willing to change now that again to clarify this doesn't make the film more enjoyable but that's this is stuff you can learn or even have fun with in reading if you want to be like me a cool guy oh <laughs> 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 uh, yeah so right second um kind of ties into that society is a weird and shifting place that's i i, I just covered that But let's look at postmodernism in respect to that. Because postmodernism, you mentioned entropy... This yeah. is entropy. That is what postmodernism is—that yes. uh, that continual decline, gradual spiral of society and reality and all things to varying flux and varying states of being and function. Yeah. That's entropy. Uh, that disorder is what we experience from Doc being in this world and the world, because the world itself that he's in functions as I kind of mentioned earlier. This world moves without him. The cogs all turn, and the thing is, it's not an intro- it's not a positive world. No, it's a, it's a very seedy world the drug deals take precedence everybody's in on it even the police who are I mean we all kind of know they're, they very often are represented in real life as a negative force yeah. we don't need inherent advice to tell us that but we can even look at the fact that there are good people working in the police in the, in the form of Bigfoot right. whose work is drying up family life is falling apart constantly bothers and harasses the people around him and he wants to be more and he might even be in, implicated in all these drug deals You know, he, he actually outright manipulates Doc into a- examining Adrian Prussia. And, you know, Doc doesn't know why he's there. In the moment, he panics because he realizes, why is he here? Uh, and gives the wrong answer. He's not exactly sure. And that then, he just knows he wants to find out more about Puck and the Golden Fang. And he finds it. What's it worth? It's all about a Bigfoot scheme. Yep. And that... That functions for Bigfoot, and at the end, while he is in disarray, and, you know, he, he swallows the weed on the table, realistically, he functions, and he moves on. Yeah,
0: it's a revenge story, in the end.
2: Oh, yeah, as far as Bigfoot's plot is concerned, yeah. absolutely. Uh, Doc says that, you know, I might not be as much into revenge as you guys. Uh, he's, <laughs> exactly. So that's he absolutely doesn't, he, he's not a part of that world or plot, you know. Exactly. He, he distances himself from the motives that drive it, yeah. you know. So, uh, again, so it's not a positive world. But it acts kind of a almost realistic view of the world it is kind of torn apart there are multiple shades to every character in this piece the the orthodontist is a drug lord and a pedophile the the concerned father is also a neo-nazi supporting drug lord himself you know yeah,
0: crocker fenway japonica's father
2: exactly you know and the other caring father is is in deep with the fbi but he's a saxophonist you know like or saxophonist everybody's got layers and the ones that we don't understand shasta Fe, we don't get much of her layers but that's intentional Mm -hmm. because she is the mystery she ties us to the noir and doc
0: we don't get much about him either
2: nope we we understand who he is by he's a hippie you know that that concept exists The
0: dirty hippie (laughs) he's a dirty
2: hippie and he embraces it you know even if he's shunned for it and that's that's cool in itself but at the same time we never we we don't get layers to him he is just driven by getting back with his old his old lady you know so that, that, to me, that's great. That's an exploration of postmodernism in the world. Narrative without narrative. Inherent Vice, this is not a film you can't follow. You know when the good is happening and the bad. You know when Doc is in trouble or tense or getting closer to finding information. The music swells, his mannerisms change, the scene lighting change. These are general things, though. These are not specifics. These are, this is film craft. This is texture. This is mood lighting, you know? This is the information beyond information, you know, this is all subtext. We're somewhere mysterious, how about bead veils? We push through them, we get a baseball bat to the head, but hey, that's, that's what you get for going somewhere mysterious. Or what about fog in the streets? There you go. Or we're detached from the person we might love, or the purpose that we've got with them, you know, mm-hmm. so we have, a, a, we have no sense of closure, which is also a big thing in modernism, a sense of closure, mm-hmm. a complete circle is a modernist ideal. So how about a scene where you're on a faded beach, a faded looking beach, I should say, uh, with looming dark music as you stare blankly ahead and your lover stares at you, smiling and dancing, and you can't even look at her for more than a second. Mm -hmm. That's, there's disconnect all in that language. You're tense. How about the camera leers down at you from a position of power in every single scene that Doc sits down at a table, which he does with Bigfoot, and he does with the orthodontist, and he does with the drug dealer, and he does with the golden fang. He's always at a table, and he's always being leered down at. Yeah. Uh, he's He loses that position of power in every single conversation, and we're being told that by the cinematography. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know? yeah, Just look at how they present Shasta. He has no power over her either. Every time she shows up, he's sitting down, and she's standing.
2: Exactly, and Fink, she literally crawls over him, naked, free, yeah. And draws him in his brute Rage. nature. Yeah. yeah, to basically act upon something that just seems inconsistent with his character, but that's that's just it, because he's basic enough and she can control them. Yeah. She's trying to incite that in him because it reminds her of the person who made her more free. It just so happens that person was a, 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 a neo-Nazi who was exceptionally uncaring as a lover. <laughs> that's Shasta, she's a fun character. <laughs>
0: I wish they could have quoted you in time and put that on the jacket of the film. Like, that's Shasta. She's a fun character. (laughs) Watching Hair Advice. (laughs) So Anderson
2: expresses each scene with everything you need to know. But the language that we see is broken down is actually being inferred to us. Just in a medium that we are not attuned to as finally, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't say it's abstract because obviously we found these interpretations of them. Especially when it comes to the camera and what we see, there's, there's a language to that that's pretty well defined when, especially when we're talking about those power plays. And the fact that, as you were saying, this is a simple film, mostly shot reverse shot. That simplicity is very intentional to make sure that we catch the hidden language. And I would say hidden language, the not surface language that Anderson is playing with uh, or using to tell what's really happening in the story. The point is this, this approach to filmmaking, this, to storytelling, this is to debunk the necessity of narrative in narrative. This is to make sure that we understand that films can be told in so many other ways. And I think it's probably important for filmmakers to know that. And that's why it's probably fun for us to analyze as people who inspire to, uh, aspire to maybe make films one day properly, you know, is is to look at how a film can essentially function without a plot. Now, you might say, well, it wasn't a fun film or it wasn't a good film, you know, that that's, that's Never fine.
0: Never
2: said it wasn't good. Oh, you know, I, I'm not saying you specifically. I mean, okay, like... Okay, cool. Like, Neil, our our lovely guest uh, commenter, hated the film. And he's totally entitled to. Yeah. But that's something that we can... If we wish to read into it, if we wish to look at it in the way that the film was trying to get us to look... Yeah. We can interpret things that are meaningful and important to learn that informs itself through its themes. And then again, in the language that it's committing to. And the story it's trying to tell isn't important. It is there, though. But it's used to the effect to... As I said earlier... It's to push you towards the characters because it's such an overload of information, you know? Last thing, adaptation. This is a fun way to adapt a, a novel. This is a great way. That's it's almost it's almost a critique of adapting novels because look at it. It, it takes novel. Uh, it takes all the words on the page and just puts it in there to get you the impression that you might get when you. This is like how I read things. When we sit down to talk about films and stories, we don't actually just go and, and, and sit at a table and then divulge details. You know, divulge entire scene verbatim. As if that means something, you know. We actually generalize. That's how we speak to each other. We're, we're doing it now. We do it all the time. This is how critique is formed. To me, that's it's not something that is perfect for how to tell a story. And in a sense, this is very much critical fiction more than it is a story to enjoy. But at the same time, it definitely imparts information to its viewer that you can still enjoy this. You laugh. It's still a comedy. After all, you can find this fun and still not get it. that's that's what's great about it because that's what they want you to do. They don't want you to pay attention uh, that's that's just what it's trying to push upon you. So as I said, this is this is me just scratching the surface. this is me generalizing about a film that wants us to generalize. But the point is, I watched it leisurely, I treated it like a book, and sure, the story's pointless, but this fulfilled me in a lot of ways that I, I I don't get from a lot of films, you know? This is the kind of stuff, this is, like, what I get from reading a good book. The stuff that sticks with you for a long time, that informs how you think, and informs how you approach storytelling, informs even little facets of your life. Um... And that's kind of, a lot of the films we've covered with Anderson so far, they have messages, they have interpretations, they have readings, and I I, I really enjoyed that, but to me, this is what I like more, What this kind of, this messes with the concept of even reading it, and it makes me rethink even trying, even bothering, but it's also affirming in that sense, because if you get something, you feel accomplished a little. That's the kind of thing that I don't see often, but I love it when I find it, you know. So absolutely. That's that's my bit. (laughs) Jason, speak, my friend.
0: Uh, Well, I really like what you had to say. And I think that it builds a really uh, necessary theoretical framework uh, to appreciate the film, because like you said, you watch the film as a novel. So yeah, yeah, because essentially that's it, it kind of plays out that way. You know, it's very, very difficult. There is a clear visual language, like I said. Yeah. There is, Anderson is clearly communicating something out. And you pointed it out beautifully when you said that the camera angles that are chosen for the characters are, are necessary to establish what he's trying to do. I think that Anderson has wanted to explore a lot of, 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 of cultural issues with his films. And I think Inherent Vice, coming out at the time it came out, really spoke to uh, Anderson because of what was going on at the time in the United States. And I think that this was the perfect book for him to adapt in order to explore everything that he's explored before, but doing it in a, in a very... Uh, abstract yet refined way.
2: Right. Okay. Interesting. And so
0: if we're looking at it from, like I said, a cultural perspective, and if we're going from idealism, pragmatism that we were talking about, there will be blood, from Mm. uh, pragmatism to existentialism in The Master, now we've got existentialism that's going to be encapsulated in the hippie movement that is actually going towards, again, capitalism Mm -hmm. in the characters of, of Bigfoot and also Mickey, right? But the problem is, now this, with the entropy concept, is going to be the two forces that are going to be constantly at battle. Where do people who want to exist as themselves, as Doc wants to be, where do they find themselves in a world where that is in a constant struggle in redefining how they're going to make money? Right? Yeah. And that is embodied essentially by Shasta, who's in the middle of both these worlds. If we take Shasta and we take her and we interpret it, what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, as a word, okay? Okay. The way Doc chooses to interpret Shasta is not the same way as Mickey chooses to interpret Shasta. Right. So she's caught in the mix between the old and the new. And this is what we got again, old and new, old and new. And so in a world post-World War II, you know, this whole idea of shell shock and post-traumatic stress, Doc is constantly inebriated. We're living again this roaring 20s. But mm. now we've got drugs. We've got LSD. We've got PCP. We've got weed. We've got so many different things. And this has now infiltrated all the way up to businessmen, to cops, to the low scumbags that that apparently Doc is supposed to be a part of. But the problem is, is that the drug itself in Inherent Vice isn't necessarily narcotics. It's the culture. How do they separate themselves? They don't know how to define themselves anymore. And therefore, they're going to stay intoxicated in yeah. order to kind of just avoid answering those questions. Yeah, yeah. Now... Pynchon's book came out in 2009, and this is just after the housing bubble collapse of 2008. But it's also at the height of hipster culture. (laughs) So we have, again, capitalism, but then longing for the past, Hmm. right? Going back to a rich tradition of values, but hipster culture is defined by not the meaning that those things have, but just the interpretation of what these people associate to them. There is a loss of meaning. The same thing can be said about Tarantino when he's pulling something from a Jean-Luc Godard film. It no longer carries the meaning that it had. Godard was fighting a system of cinema that he was sick of seeing. Whereas Tarantino pulls it and he's like, look what I know. But it no longer carries the political influence that Godard was trying to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, Anderson, you know, if we look at 2009, again, we're at this crossroads between hipster culture and the crash of capitalism, right? Trying to, yeah. lo- this longing for the past. And then for Anderson to want to adapt this in 2014, five years after, okay, we have to look at the themes that Anderson has had in his movies so far. And again, I, like I said, Anderson, when I was talking about There Will Be Blood, we're talking about transitions. And when I talked about the master, we're talking about transitions. And I think that inherent vice speaks to those transitions again. Right. But it also talks about family. Another one of Anderson's really interesting themes. Okay. We have Bigfoot who has a family and he constantly is pulled back by his wife and saying, hang up the fucking phone, come out for supper. You know, these people are constantly being pulled away from their families in order to do what? To work, in order to provide for their families. So they're mm-hmm. swallowed up in the machine again, right? But you'll have also have Koi's family, right? Hope, Jesus Christ, could he have chosen a better name, <laughs> right? Yeah. She hopes to see her husband back in her yeah. arms. He's a guy who plays the saxophone. And ultimately, Doc has to rely on Hope calling him. Because who is Doc's family? Shasta, the only way he can get her back is by reuniting all the other families, all right? And that speaks right, directly yeah. to Anderson as well. In Inherent Vice, at the core of it is a family, no matter how scattered it is. Even Wolfman goes back to his family in the end.
2: That's a great way to see that.
0: But the, the funny thing is, is that to me, and I, I can't, I don't know, I can't project myself into where Anderson's going, but Anderson with Inherent Vice completes his study of the human condition. Right. And he does so in a postmodern fashion. He doesn't talk to you directly about it, but he's going to pepper it throughout the entire narrative and let you deal with it. Yeah. And what I want to talk about most specifically is the five years in between the publication of the novel and the adaptation of that novel. And so in those five years, there's there was a rise in concern for basic human rights. And that has come kicking full force into cultural discourse, especially in the United States. definitely. And one of the main things throughout the entire film is the scandals involving police brutality. Definitely. And so if we look in between that period, 2009 and 2014, the one that came out that was the most prominent is the Black Lives Matter movement that started in 2013. That's great, right? yeah. And this was as a result of... Of the murder of Trayvon Martin Mm -hmm. in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Now, in the film, we have Tariq Khalil, right? He goes to see the doctor. He goes to see Doc, who, funnily enough, if if he's a doctor, he's called Doc Sportello. He has an office in in a fucking hospital. And I think that it's brilliant that Pynchon would have thought of this that he becomes the doctor society needs to put things straight. It's very interesting that he would yeah. actually be literally. In at a least doctor at doctor. least he
2: defines himself as that role. Huh? There you go.
0: But I mean, Anderson in adapting, he cut a lot of what uh, uh, Khalil's character was going to be. And mm. I think that speaks directly to how much uh, black culture has not had a voice in such a mm. long time. And even if we look at what we were talking about um, in, in, uh, uh, O.J. Simpson uh, made in America last on the last episode. The Rodney King beating was something they got away with. Trayvon Martin, the same thing. Zimmerman was acquitted from, from, from wrongdoing. Right. And I think that the lack of attention that the black community has received is actually ex- where Khalil, where Tariq right Khalil there. fits in.
2: That, I love that. I think that's uh, that's a great way to see that character. because like, ugh. And the, just funny, went.
0: <laughs> the funny thing is that he's in and out of the movie like you wouldn't believe he's just there. Oh, there's our black guy. And Absolutely. Then after that, he has
2: literally that one scene.
0: <laughs> but I think that when they they talk about, you know, Khalil, what he says in the film, anyway, he says he, he's talked to the Aryan Brotherhood. So you got the white guys, essentially that owe him and Glenn Sherlock owe him a lot of money. And he Mm -hmm. went to jail. He goes on to mention that the entire black neighborhood where he was from is gone. It's been completely wiped out, bought by Wolfman's company. And so I think that even that speaks to what people have been doing to minorities. I mean, even Sordelage in the car goes on a little bit of a tirade when she mentions that... um, uh, minorities had been taking been taking their land away from them for so long i mean minorities have been having their lands taken away from them for so long she mentions the mexicans she made she mentions the natives and then what we magically see once doc is basically filtering this because Sorlej, to me is, is is a figment of his imagination we see it like she's in the car talking but when you see the reverse shot on from doc's side she's no longer sitting in the seat next to him hmm. he he essentially heads to the, the bulldozed place that tariq Khalil mentions and what do we see what's the image that's there we have the the uh, massage parlor but it's also a loop that leads to two different directions either you go right for the fascists or or if you go back to where you're coming from which is weird you know you see this this community that's completely destroyed it's a complete wasteland where Wolfman is going to erect these weird buildings yeah Mm -hmm. low cost housing essentially destroying low cost housing to re-implement low cost housing in order to make more money so essentially building his 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 namesake his life force over the top of other people if that isn't a better image for capitalism I don't know what is (laughs) and so I think that really goes to show that capitalism is that bully it is also engulfed in police brutality that 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 exploits the totalitarianism that the government will have over minorities yeah uh, it's even in the form of dialogue that uh bigfoot Bjornson uses at the end of the film when he kicks down doc's door he says after a long day, uh, after a long and busy day of civil rights violations, it's flat out there. That's a sentence yeah. in the fucking movie. You know, whenever Doc bends down, he covers his ass whenever he's in the police of, uh, <laughs> presence of police, you know. And that's one of the things. It's one of the things that cops used to do to, to the communities of black people. And Dave Chappelle mentions it very well in one of his uh, shows. He says, whenever you're stopped by a, uh, officers, they're going to search your ass to see if you're hiding any drugs in there, which is Fucking terrible. How many times have you had been pulled over by the cops and they said, hey, take off your pants and I'm going to stick. Absolutely no time. <laughs> and it goes even farther by showing the show Adam 12, where two cops, including Bjornsson, who's on screen at that point, hmm. are talking about ambushing two male Negroes that have possibly on foot. So you have Anderson that's kind of showing a little bit in his own way that things haven't changed at all. And mm-hmm. it's a very sad place where we are in time, even with the hipster culture that is trying to define themselves according to the past, but not necessarily knowing where that past comes from, that that past used to have a fucking meaning. And that's where postmodernism comes into it. We have lost the meaning of where things are going. And this is where you'll have Sportello and Bjornsen actually becoming doubles in the film sportello is what's being left behind and bjornson is what is to come if we don't have the power to change yet and i thought that it was brilliant for anderson to kind of have more of a hippie mentality when it comes to interpreting inherent vice by saying aren't we all a big family shouldn't we all be acting like doc shouldn't we all just not like just you know what there's cocaine on the table just snort it or Smoke some weed, Bill Hicks style, where he's like, you know what? People who smoke weed never get into fights. But then
2: reality kicks down the door. I mean,
0: exactly. Reality kicks down the door. And it's a sad reality that we live in.
2: However, it, it, it is definitely. Yeah. I think that's very strong. I think it's a very important emphasis. It's it was kind of saying the background of this world it functions, but it's not good. No, you know. And the only inherent good thing he is old-fashioned. He is of his time, and he's of a very particular kind of person, and he's not ready to change.
0: And what does that say about Anderson?
2: That he's, you yeah, know, he's absolutely trying to stand
0: for that corner. It just. Doesn't exist. There you go. But as a filmmaker as well, if we're looking at the meta narrative in postmodernism, Anderson is at that crossroads. Where does he go from here?
2: That is interesting. Although I—that's what I mean. The fascination with the postmodern here, and the the final note we get for Sportello, it feels like there has to be a middle ground. You know, yeah, yeah, and definitely. that's what I mean. Anderson, this isn't going away. That's what I feel. You know, we have to. At least face up to the fact reality is a bit shit and totally corrupt and we have to kind of fix it. And the only way we can't fix it by getting high and sitting around, we have to be active about it and we can't be backwards looking, at least forward driving. And if that's the case, then we, we can look to Sportello and go, yeah, drive the car. You can look back all you want as long as you fucking drive the car. (laughs)
0: Exactly. But at the same time, that's where Shasta comes back into play. You think? You're talking about reality, right? When she comes back, she's been hit by reality. Has she not? Yes. Yes. In a strange way... You know, if you choose to view the, the, the film through this lens, Shasta could be a hallucination. She could be a hallucination of a of a time that didn't really exist. Hmm. It's always been that background that you're talking about. Shasta was just an illusion.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. She's like an idealized uh, middle ground between uh, of, of of the aspirations that Doc Good. wants. So yeah, it's
0: the innocence that Doc still has.
2: Yeah, that of course makes her that um, MacGuffin that drives the plot, yes, but also informs the MacGuffin. She becomes this idealized place where you can both be reflective yeah. and based in one living and still be progressive and forward-thinking and help in some degree, or at least adapt in some degree to help. Yeah. That the world needs more doctors. <laughs>
0: that's exactly right, yeah. Um,
2: that's that's great. That's a, that's a great reading that really hits like both sides of the head of, of this postmodernist thought not being fully developed, and that there has to be more. We can't just define it by another definition, you know? Mm-hmm. That it has to be continually striving towards a middle point where we can be happy with certain stability and uh, at least content to work with the, the constant flux. So that's fascinating. I think that's the perfect way to read Shasta as well. And
0: Anderson, I also agree. I think you really rounded those all those themes out really well I... and the thing is is that it also points to one last little thing the fact that the film is a loop you know the the way that the the opening shot is designed You'll have um, the, the the two uh, houses, like I said, going down to a beachfront. And before the epilogue starts, before uh, Bjornsen kicks down the door, you'll have that same shot. Mm-hmm. Everything between those two shots essentially is that loop. The strange aspect of the loop is that it speaks directly to how these two things we're, we're talking about. You know, the, the innocence, the idealism that comes with it, capitalism, the intertwined ness that's going to be caught in entropy is this never-ending cycle. And it goes to show just how even the last shot of the film and the, uh, of Doc and the first shot of the film of Doc are of actually kind of mirror images. And funnily enough, he's staring in a mirror. The first shot of <laughs> Doc is him on his couch looking left. That, in, in in film language, is him staring out to the past. If you're looking right, it, it acts as a timeline. If you're looking right, mm. you're thinking of the future. If you're looking left, you're thinking of the past. It's how and we how, read. Exactly. And how interesting is it that Shasta comes in frame right as though she's actually coming from the future. He has to look to the future Shasta in order to recuperate the image of her in the past at the end of the film. And she is described by Sortilege when she's uh, mentioning it. And I have it written down here. I'm going to read directly from my notes. Okay, the opening of the book, the opening of Pynchon's book, is verbatim the first words that you hear in the film. Right, And Sortilege mentions that what, what Shasta is wearing essentially, is um, a Country Joe and the Fish t-shirt and a bottom half of a flower print bikini. You know, that was Shasta in the past. When mm-hmm. she shows up to see Doc in the beginning, she is wearing something that she swore she never would look like. That's exactly what uh, sort of says. However, when Shasta comes back at an hour and 40 minutes in the film, so essentially at the end of the second act, she is wearing the Country Joe and the half bottom print of the bikini. So... Doc, essentially, we could act, we could say that this is a hallucination. Now that she might have actually come back to who she was, or is is uh, is she literally back to the reality, the place that she wanted to be as an individual before actually going back into the world?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's fun. I mean, you could even look at what they say. They, of course, they're not back together.
0: No, exactly. He says that the
2: past isn't recaptured. So what Shasta could be doing? is teasing pulling using the, uh, the using the effects of the past to drag doc into the future you know
0: exactly and that's why i think that the 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 opening shot of doc on the couch looking left really really is important in looking and how he he stares in the mirror in the rearview mirror at the end of the film is to show that doc again is that loop right mm-hmm. and the loop to me is encapsulated very very clearly in the long crab left shot on a dolly that they use to show between the palm trees, Doc and Sancho that are walking uh, left it's when fang. the boat is being dragged back to shore. You know, yeah. we, dude, Doc was looking out the window in that Scorsese lighting I was talking about. He's looking out the window with his binoculars. There's that blue lighting that uh, that you can have and in, 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 I think it was in Goodfellas, if I'm not mistaken. He uses it in a couple of films. I think he uses it in After Hours as well. There's very clear blue lighting. He's looking through his binoculars and then you'll have a another shot of, of, um, of uh, Shasta who's staring... Uh, And she's in red, you know, so you'll have desire in red and you'll have longing, the blues essentially in blue, you know, this uh, this idea of nostalgia that's going to be encapsulated. So Anderson is very much aware of what he's trying to do with that when he comes and he bookends with that beautiful shot of him staring in the rearview mirror or sorry, when he comes and, and he uses that crab left shot of the boat. The boat that Shasta was on, Mm -hmm. bringing it back to the past. It's like him dragging his past back. But he's also dragging Sportello back to his initial point in the film and how he viewed Shasta. Right. She's right. no longer corrupt, and him driving away, going forward, is like you said. Is Shasta? She's kind of pushing him forward, but he's also staring back. But I think that that crab left, that very, very carefully crafted shot of moving left, is kind of like a, a videotape rewinding, bringing yeah. us back to the beginning of the film to close the loop.
2: That's great, and I, I, I like what it says about Anderson yeah. because the Scorsese, the the Kubrick, the the Altman, it's all there. Yeah, he's using Shasta. Um, the boat, the past is all there, but he's <laughs> dragging us, the viewer, into the future. Exactly. That's what. So if he's dragging I think, us into the past. Well, th- but he's teasing the past to drag us into the future. That's what I yes, mean. Yes, sorry. Yes, you're right. Yeah. He's so he's. <laughs> He's toying with what our expectations of him are, yeah. you know, and he's playing with his own influences to the point where we all spot the connections, but
0: but they're communicating something. It's different.
2: all to a, a new aim. Exactly. You know, we are dragging slowly towards a new direction mm-hmm. regarding Anderson. And that's if we're going to pot shot where we might be going next. It's, it's that distant unknown future where yeah. we're, we're, the the influences might be there to tease us along, but very much this to me felt like a goodbye. You can never leave your past behind. I think that's what's fun about the end. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you can definitely double down on the future. Yeah, and that's what's uh, I think a pretty interesting, uh, an exciting way to see what happens next. Because we could be all wrong, I mean, just, but it's fun. I I, I have fun looking at stuff like yeah. that.
0: And I mean, it's kind of fun because um, I think that even the last lines is like, we're not really back together, are we? Well, we're not necessarily back together. I, I-, I think that that's a very interesting on-the-nose reference to film Manoir where he actually gets the girl. But yeah. But was like, mm-hmm. well, he kind of gets the girl, but not really. Kind of, yeah, you know? yeah. And we're I think that – Not together. <laughs> I-, I think it's – in a way, you can interpret those lines. Again, going back to words, as Anderson apologizing. In a sense, are we going to be okay after this? Is this going to be us? Are we going to? Yeah, be- yeah, that's that's <laughs> perfect. Kind of definitely, definitely chiding the audience a little bit. I'm you know? <laughs> sorry, I
2: made inherent feist. It was for exactly. me. <laughs> just
0: in, it was for me. You guys can watch it if you want. I tried I to bring beat. a
2: few of you with me, but I, you know what? Exactly. This film is not for you. Yeah, most I'm I'm
0: driving away now. I'll look back at what I did. <laughs> yeah. Look, I've already made your films. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me do mine. Yeah, you know, and then we're Shasta sitting next to him, going like, "What the fuck?"
2: <laughs> what better way to round it up than to kind of ominously look to the future by staring at yeah. the past? That's great. So I, I'm, I'm quite happy to put yeah. a little, little uh nip on, uh, on, the, on the boat that is inherent vice and progress away from Paul Thomas Anderson yeah, for a absolutely. couple of Yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, so obviously we we with this this film it's only the tip of the iceberg in my opinion there's so much absolutely. left to talk about. So
2: Like if I mean like all those that overabundance of information yep is still information you can use it if you want to go there you want to dig it i mean what jason said about contextualizing uh the p- particular space in which these films are made and the era that the film frames you have there's a treasure trove there alone that we basically we teased but like there's there's an essays upon essays waiting to be read and re- reinterpreted right there so knock yourselves out <laughs> if you're that kind of listener <laughs>
0: Yeah, so don't be too hard on us if uh, if ever you guys are like you guys didn't talk about this. Yeah, we get it. How about you talk about it and we'll be happy to indulge. Absolutely. And I think that yeah, this one's um, inherent vice is uh is a tricky way to end the season.
2: I feel I feel like I feel like we are we've We've ended on a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, it, it's it's good because this is the end of season one. Yeah, the end of season. Uh, one. <laughs> the cliffhanger. We're teasing season two.
0: Yeah, uh, which is going to start in two weeks' time. We're going to be pushing our release date not to February first, but to February eighth. So uh, our uh, our talk our discussion of M. Night Shyamalan's split and the village is going to be in two weeks time, just so that we can set ourselves up for what we wanted to do like we were talking about in the in the beginning of the show so, how do we how do we end this? you want any, a couple of shoutouts to give there, sir? Fuck. Uh, <laughs> oh no <laughs> okay, from this point onwards,
2: listener, I'm gonna make a small list of people in the week that I've talked to, because I've talked to a lot of people each time, and each time I forget to, to thank people for speaking to me specifically, like I'm, I'll, I'll never write down the name so uh you guy who give me comments on my la la -la review uh on, on the blog thank you. I think your name, name was Steve. Thank you. Uh, you have your own blog. I would love to shout shouted that out. Maybe another time. And um, yeah, the, the usual crowd, I guess. Uh, I, but you that you have listed so you can go into that. All right, well,
0: I want to thank everybody who sent in an audio clip to us. Uh, yeah. J.D. Duran from In Session Film. Thank you so much. Uh, Neil Ramji, I, yeah. I love what he had to say and all that. The same thing for Hermione. Uh, we're, we're still in the works for getting her on the show. I really wanted her take on a couple of films. We haven't really pinpointed anything uh and uh, yeah Andrew is uh, brilliant we, I, I've had so much fun talking with Andrew so far that I want to give a big shout out to Mike from uh, War Machine versus Warhorse. Uh, we've been chatting quite a bit it's been quite fun so <laughs> yeah I want to give a shout out to Ashley Davis as well
2: Al Robinson the Nerd on Nerd guys they listen to our our, our top 10 exactly obviously In Session and, and Maddie Nags and so on they they always get back to us and tell us how lovely we are so that's amazing and
0: sheila we really hope that you listen to this because it's going to be an ongoing thing from now on which you heard at the beginning of the show so big shout out to you my dear and sorry for missing out on the top 10 but now you we have your blessing i hope for keeping to mentioning you you're going to be the thing that starts our show every fucking time so on that note my name is jason michael uh, you can find me at film underscore faculty on Twitter. You can also check out my film review blog site thing, uh, where I haven't posted since arrival. I'm still working on stuff. I say the same thing every time. Um, keep keep listening to the show, guys. You guys were having so much fucking fun with Follow this. Follow him on Twitter. Great.
2: He is always on Twitter, and he will talk right back to you. So he's a very all friendly the time. Chat. I,
0: I I answer everyone. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So if you guys want my take on something, or if you just want to chat for a fun time, you want fun time yeah, shout out yeah, jason yeah, exactly. michael on twitter <laughs> exactly and now to you sir uh yep so my name is
2: lee brady writer in chief of big picture reviews with my with my crack team of unprofessional journalists and you can definitely check us out at big you can also follow me on twitter at big pick reviews now, i'm not that i'm less friendly on twitter but i am less active so go for Jason first if you want and, and he'll drag me into conversations. that's time to be how it happened and I'll retweet stuff when I see it and that's that's just how that happened uh, but yeah absolutely give us a follow uh, thank you for listening to the show
0: cool so that's it for us for season one of the Atlantic Screen Connection buckled up at 20 episodes uh, season two is next season two episode one is going to be up in two weeks where we're going to be talking about M. Night Shyamalan's split as well as touching the village a little bit
2: and some exciting themes that we we're hopefully gonna make
0: yeah them. absolutely i'm really looking forward to that you guys got a little snippet of what i could uncover in the last like just off the yeah, top of yeah yeah so. and so that's it for us take care everyone Bye-bye. Bye bye